our study in the book of James, and particularly if you were here with us last week, we're in the same passage, so it should be familiar to you. Uh, once again, James chapter 1, verses 16 through 27. Let's read together. James writes, Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth, that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. Know this, my beloved brothers. Let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger. For the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Therefore, put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness, and receive with meekness the implanted word, which is able to save your souls. But be doers of the word, and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror. For he looks at himself and goes away and at once forgets what he was like. But the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets, but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. If anyone thinks he is religious and does not bridle his tongue, but deceives his heart. This person's religion is worthless. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God, the Father, is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction, and to keep oneself unstained from the world. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Let me pray for us. Father, once again, we open ourselves to You and we ask that Your Spirit would have His way with us. That You would cause us to hear what we need to hear this morning. Help us to see Jesus once again, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. A few months ago, I was uh, studying in um, kind of a secret place. It won't be secret anymore. I go and study in uh, the SMU libraries. One of them, I'll tell you that. Studying in one of the SMU libraries. And I noticed... Uh, a large picture on the front page of the campus newspaper. It was the cover story of the Daily Campus, and it was a picture of students protesting. And they were protesting the recent tragic confrontations in places like Ferguson in New York that sparked a storm of controversy across our nation. And the particular form that this protest took was a die-in. It was a die-in. That's what the picture showed. The center of campus was littered with about 50, 60 students um, lying on their back, acting as if they were dead. But there was one anomaly in the picture. In fact, it was the student that I could see most clearly, the student that I thought stood out in the foreground most clearly. Uh, she was laying on her back. She was among the dead, except for the fact that she had her eyes open and her cell phone was in front of her face, and she was texting. She even had her earbuds in place. And I gotta tell you, as serious as the scene looked, I couldn't help but laugh when I saw the picture, because this one little anomaly has sort of undermined the spirit of the thing. Uh, here was this young woman who was willing to associate herself with the movement, but unwilling to pay the cost. And looking at the picture, she made you want to just sort of say to her, pick a side. 
Dead or alive, you can't be both, but choose one. Are you in or are you out? You can't have it both ways. You can't be both in and be out at the same time. In many ways, this is James's challenge to us as we consider the big question that he wants us to ask. That is, how do we grow up as Christians? How do we grow up? And James would reply, well, the way that we grow up is we become fully invested in the movement with which we've associated ourselves. That is the life and the mission of Jesus Christ. James wants us to pick a side. Uh, If you want to associate yourself with Jesus, then be willing to pay the cost of following him with your whole heart. In other words, don't live your life as a sort of visual contradiction. Now you know this, but there's an ancient word for this that we know well, it's the word hypocrisy. Hypocrisy, by definition, is the claim or pretense of holding beliefs that we don't actually hold on to when it comes to the daily realities of life. The word hypocrisy comes from the Greek word that means uh, play acting. It was used of theater performers and those who are experts at impersonations. And listen, to some degree, the charge of hypocrisy could be laid at any believer in anything. (laughs) whether that person is religious, a Christian, or not. That is to say, none of us are entirely consistent at integrating what we say we value with what we actually do in the everydayness of our lives. But here's the thing. We all pretty much recognize this as a bad thing, don't we? I mean, you don't hear a lot of talk of aspiring hypocrites. No one one wants to grow up and be a hypocrite. Hypocrisy is almost universally recognized as a flaw. And so it's not strange to hear that hypocrisy is commonly listed as one of the strongest deterrents of non-Christians considering the Christian faith. In a Barna poll from a few years ago, the biggest negative perception for 16 to 29-year-olds who would think about Christianity but were outside of the faith, the biggest negative perception was that Christianity is judgmental. Just reporting. Um, But almost in a dead heat was the charge that Christianity is marked by hypocrisy. We universally recognize as a society that hypocrisy is off-putting. But just for some perspective this morning, I want you to know, we we lose sight of this sometimes because we are sort of, uh, we get caught in the disease of the now. Hypocrisy is not a particular modern temptation, Okay. The gap that exists between listening and doing, the gap that exists between hearing, between professing, and actually living out our words has always been a part of the human struggle. We see it throughout the Bible. Time of Moses, God rescues his people from Israel. They thank him. They're so thankful for it. But throughout the Old Testament, excuse me, throughout at least the time of Moses, he uses a word to describe them over and over again, and he he calls them a stiff-necked people. He loves them, but they're stiff-necked because they're not practicing what they've heard him say. The Hebrew prophets, one of the main roles of the Hebrew prophets was to prosecute the people of God, okay, to act as attorneys on God's behalf, to prosecute the people of God in their covenant obligations, for the charge of hypocrisy. And James here this morning in a very prophetic tone 
caused Christians everywhere in the early church to grow up and to actually put into practice what they say they believe. You know, friends, this morning, the bad news is um, uh, that there is hypocrisy in the church. There's hypocrisy in the church. There always has been. We're not happy about that, but that's reality. There is a lot of inconsistency, even in this church. Don't think of someone else. Think of yourself. (laughs) Even in this church, between what we say we believe and what we actually do. Now listen, the good news is that throughout history, God has made his home among hypocrites. God loves hypocrites. He loves us enough to make his home among us, to bind his life to ours, and he loves us enough this morning to give us the voice of his servant James to call us to something more. James says, become, become doers of the word. Don't just be a hearer. Don't just be someone who who sits out there and professes or pretends to believe or impersonates. Become an actual doer. The next few minutes, I want us to look at two things from James's counsel regarding doing. If you were here last week, you know, his counsel is pretty simple. We looked at the fact that James called us to be good listeners as Christians. This week, he's going to be tell, tell us to be a faithful doer. In order to grow up, we need to be quick to hear, but we also need to be faithful doers. So two things from our, uh, this morning from our passage. First, I want you to see the warning about not doing what we hear. I want you to see the warning in the first paragraph, verses 22 through 25. The warning about not doing what we hear. And then second, I want you to see the charge to do what we hear with integrity in three areas of our lives. So first, the warning in verses 22 through 25, and then the charge in verses 26 through 27. Let's look at the warning first. Look with me again at verses 22 through 25. Put your eyes there on the page. James says, but be doers of the word. Now, commentators agree that maybe a better way to say, you know, this may sound semantic, but I think it has import. A better word for be there is actually become. So James is saying become doers, that is grow into this sort of person. Being a doer isn't just flipping a switch, it's something that you have to strive for, that you actually grow into. Become doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. For if anyone is a hearer and not a doer, he is like a man who looks intently at his natural face in the mirror. For he looks at himself, and the word look there is the word for, he takes a quick glance. He glances at himself quickly. And then he goes away and at once forgets what he was like. But the one who looks into, the word there is gaze. So you need to see the comparison, glances then gaze. The one who gazes into the perfect law, the law of liberty and persevere being No hearer who forgets, but a doer who acts. He will be blessed, or he will be happy in his doing. So friends, look, the warning from James to us this morning comes in the form of an illustration. Let's do it like this. So imagine, this is probably something you did this morning. Imagine looking at yourself in the mirror. You look at yourself in the mirror before you go out for your day, and let's say you look great. Let's just go with a positive self-image here, okay? You looked at yourself in the morning, and you look fantastic. You did so quickly, you were very pleased with what you saw, and then you left for the day. Now, how much does the glance in the mirror really matter after the fact? Does glancing in the mirror in the morning really impact, does it really have an, does it have import really for the rest of your day? And the answer is probably no, like the glance that you take in the morning at the mirror probably doesn't affect your business decisions, right? 
mean, it probably doesn't affect the conversations that you're about to have with other people. It probably doesn't impact when you decide to do your homework at night. You know, what James is saying is that uh, the glance is a moment in our lives that, practically speaking, is not very influential to the rest of our lives. And what he wants us to ask ourselves this morning is this. Is this the way that we engage the Word of God? Is our engagement with God's Word just a glance in the mirror? Is it just a quick check-in for our lives, but with little impact in our daily living? Now, now hold that there for a moment, and I want you to look at the contrast between someone like that who glances into a mirror and forgets, and then someone, as James says, who gazes into, he writes, the perfect law of liberty and perseveres. So two things to notice here about the contrast, about the person who actually becomes a doer. Number one, the doer is someone who sees God's world. He sees God's word as a real source of freedom. I'm going to say it again. The doer is someone who sees God's word as a real source of freedom in her life. James here calls it the law of liberty. That is, the person who is a doer automatically listens to the word of God with this attitude. In order for me to be liberated in my life, in order for me to be liberated in my work and in my relationships and in my parenting, in order for me to be really free, I need the word of God to make a difference. Do you see that? To the doer, to the doer, God's word is de facto assumed. Without having to convince her, God's word is assumed to make a practical difference in daily life. No one has to convince her of the connection. The word of God is her way to freedom, and she longs for it. It is her way to freedom. Number two. Second, I want you to notice that she perseveres, or he perseveres. Um, she looks at it as a way to freedom, and that she perseveres. That is to say this, the doer is someone who makes doing a priority in his life. I can say it like this. Doing for the doer um, is a spiritual discipline. It is a spiritual discipline. What is a spiritual discipline? A spiritual discipline is something that you are committed to doing, that you are committed to persevering in for your own spiritual health, whether you feel that way or not. It is something you are committed to, no matter your feelings. And I want to say something about that just for a moment. Now, a PCPC, where you've landed this morning if you're new, is an evangelical church. <laughs> That's in our literature. We don't apologize for that. We embrace that identity. Um, we are an evangelical church. My guess is that many of you who are here this morning were probably raised in evangelical traditions. Not all of you, but many of you. And what evangelicalism has done historically well is to emphasize the priority of learning the Word of God. That is, we want to know what Scripture really says and what Scripture really means. So that in the dominant ways that we as evangelicals think about our spiritual lives, the way that the dominant ways that we think about spiritual disciplines almost always centers around intake. Notice this, that we love Bible studies. We, we, really, we really value Bible reading in quiet times. We, if you go downstairs to the bookstore, we have a ton of Bible translations. We want to make it easy for you to read. We value this, the, the Word of God being opened up and taught. If you've grown up around evangelicalism, 
then um, I promise you, you probably feel like me. You probably feel out of sorts, or you feel spiritually dry if you've somehow gotten away from these disciplines in your life. Something feels off in your soul if you're not reading your Bible regularly, or listening to God's Word being taught, or learning something new. And let me say, that is, that is a strength, historically. It's a really, really good thing. But James would have us ask, do we feel spiritually off? Do we feel the same way when we're cut off from the poor? Do we feel the dryness in our own souls when we're self-indulgent, when we're careless with our words? You know, what James is suggesting here is that our spiritual disciplines can really get out of balance. (laughs) In the same way that we have to train ourselves to read the Bible, Uh, and to go to Bible studies, and to learn new things. We have to actually persevere and train ourselves to become practitioners. And that means recognizing that spiritual apathy or dryness or lethargy in our life may have nothing to do with needing to hear something new at all. It may have everything to do with our failure to become doers and the choices that we actually make. That's the warning. Don't deceive yourself. Don't deceive yourself. Don't deceive myself and assume that hearing will be enough for us. Train yourself. Persevere in becoming a doer. Persevere in the law of liberty. Now second, what will becoming a doer look like in our lives? Look next at the charge that James gives us in verses 26 through 27, short paragraph here. He writes, if anyone thinks he is religious and does not bridle his tongue but deceives his heart, this person's religion is worthless Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. So listen, James mentions three kinds of doing here that are extremely important categories for him. In fact, he's going to return to these categories over and over again throughout the letter. Okay, these are major things for him. Here are the three categories. They are, number one, a disciplined tongue. Uh, the doing or the discipline of a controlled tongue. The doing of a controlled tongue. Number two, the discipline of justice. The doing of justice. And then number three, the discipline of holiness. So if you're asking the question, how do I become a doer? James doesn't like leave it for your imagination to think. He says start here. Really practical things. Your tongue. <laughs> start with justice in your life. Look at holiness. Let's look briefly at each of those. First, the discipline of a controlled tongue. Just want you to see um, what James brings out here. He says this, if anyone thinks he is religious, I I want us to sort of not think of the word religious because that has sort of a um, a negative connotation. So let's replace that with, with what James is saying here. If anyone thinks he is pious, do it like this. If anyone thinks he is really devout, if you're a devoted Christian, and they do not bridle their tongue, then he says, but deceives his heart. Now there's a little disagreement there about that translation. The Greek word for deceives is often translated as indulges instead, and I really think that's what James is after. So it would sound like this. If anyone thinks he is a devout Christian and does not bridle his tongue, but indulges his heart, that is, he he lets anything come out from his heart to his mouth. If anyone indulges his heart with what he says, this person's devotion is worthless told you, you know, Mark, we said the Mark Twain quote last week, you know, James is not enigmatic. It won't be the parts that you don't understand that will bother you. (laughs) It'll be the parts that are clear that we understand that'll be hard for us to hear. 
And James is saying that true devotion to God will be on display in your life in a guarded heart and in guarded speech. In your words that are controlled, that are measured, that are purposeful. How do I become a doer? James says, start here. Care for your words. Care for your words. Do your faith in how you speak to and speak about other people. That's one. Number two is this, the discipline of justice. He says this next. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God, the Father, is this. To visit orphans and widows in their affliction. So visit here, the word visit, is code for relief. Provide relief for James is just saying that genuine devotion to God involves doing this. It involves raising orphans and widows out of their destitution and raising them up to to, to be accorded the dignity that belongs to them. Now, I want us to stop here for a minute and just think about this because the context is extremely helpful. It seems odd to us that James would single out orphans and widows, but it's because he is steeped in the imagination of the Old Testament. So in the Old Testament, there were four groups of people that were mentioned repeatedly as deserving special attention. Here they were. Widows, orphans, resident aliens, that was uh, non-citizens, and the poor. They, They come together all the time in the Old Testament. These groups get special attention in the legal codes. They get special attention in the accusations of the prophets about injustice, and they get special attention. If you ever read the Psalms, you'll notice that the psalmist talks about the violations of justice, and he often uses these groups. Let me give you two examples. Deuteronomy 24, Moses says this. Early on in the history of the people of Israel, Moses writes, you shall not deprive a foreigner, that is a resident alien, or an orphan of justice. You shall not take a widow's garment in a pledge. And the prophet Isaiah, hundreds of years later, Isaiah writes, seek justice, rescue the oppressed, defend the orphan, plead for the widow. So why these four? what, What do orphans and widows and resident aliens and the poor have in common in the Old Testament? Listen, they were the ones that had no voice. They were at the bottom of civic life. There was no one to fight for them. They were the ones who were the most vulnerable to injustice. They had no power to plead for themselves. Listen, in the Old Testament, the command to provide relief for, to care for, to raise up the orphans and the widows and the poor and the aliens, we'll call them the vulnerables. Um, The command to provide for the vulnerables This was not a command that was rooted in the language of charity. It is a command that is rooted instead in the language of justice. And friends, i got to tell you, that may not seem like a big deal to you this morning. It really, it shook up my paradigm a couple of years ago. And here's why. I had always thought about helping people. About helping people as an act of charity or generosity. And whether that's right or not in my own mind, mercy or charity is always in my imagination an act that goes beyond obligation. It's not something that I have to do, but it is something I'm supposed to do to go above and beyond my normal responsibilities, for example, to my my kids or to my wife. But when the prophets prosecute the people of God, 
When the prophets lay down the charges for not helping widows and the poor and orphans, listen to me, the charge is not stinginess. The charge is injustice. God looks at his people and he says it's a failure to hold up their covenant obligations. And what that means is that the vulnerables, those who are most vulnerable, the orphans and the widows and those who are struggling, in the Old Testament, God says they have a right to the care and the comfort and the provision of those whom God had blessed. So this was extremely unsettling for me. Maybe it's not for you. Maybe you knew this. Um, But it just meant for me personally that my obligations were much more expansive than I thought. It meant that the the gospel obligates me to advocate, to stand up for, to speak for those who are vulnerable around me, those who are lowly, those who need lifting up, those without a voice or without power to defend themselves. What James is saying this morning is that this is never the special call of people who just love to be involved in mercy ministry. (laughs) This is a covenant obligation of taking on the name of Jesus. It is a covenant obligation of being loved by God. Becoming a doer means that we work practically to care for our words. It also means that we are involved in raising up the lowly. Finally, number three, the discipline of holiness. James ends this way, religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction, then he says, and to keep oneself unstained from the world. Unstained from the world just means that we always, in all of our wondering and all of our doing and all of our involvement, we always, always, always still remain at a certain distance from the world as we live in it. Easy way to say it is this, we're always out of place. (laughs) Uh, We're always weird. You're called to be weird and not weird in an intentionally offensive way. (laughs) but in all the weirdness that would imply that you're taking seriously the fact that you are not your own, but you belong instead to God as your Father. might say it like this, real devotion, real piety in James' imagination is letting the problems and the pain of the world into your life without allowing the attitudes and assumptions of the world to seep into your heart and your mind. Make it a discipline, James says, to live a holy life, to live disconnected in your heart and mind, in the world, and yet at a distance from it. So James is very practical for us um, on how to become a doer. We're supposed, to, we're supposed to care for our words. We are supposed to care for the lowly around us, the vulnerables. And we are supposed to care for what seeps into our minds and our hearts. But why is that? You know, why is it that James picks on these things of all things? Why, why these three categories that you'll hear over and over again in his letter? Why these three in his general counsel to Christians about how to grow up? You know, I think it must be that when James looked at Jesus, when he looked at his own brother, these were the things that stood out most to him. You know, James is Jewish. And in his brother Jesus, he saw a true Israelite. He saw a man in Jesus who loved people with his words. A man in Jesus who lived his life to raise up the lowly, the destitute, the poor. A man in Jesus who lived in the world and yet remained unstained by the world. And what James wants us to see in the final analysis 
is that to grow up as a Christian, it always, always, always means looking like Jesus. In fact, that's what the word Christian means. Maybe you know this, but the word Christian literally means little Jesus, little Christ. In your name, you'll also find the goal of your life. In the name given to you at your baptism, Christian, you will find the purpose of your baptism, that you would visibly become not a contradiction, but a little version of Jesus himself. A man or woman who grows more fully into the family resemblance of God the Father who has claimed you as his own. Kay Gabrish uh, is one of our gifted teachers. And I've heard her on a number of occasions. She tells a story of when her daughter Marissa was adopted. Maybe some of you have heard the story. Marissa's in our church as well. Uh, Ray and Kay have an older son named Jeremy. And when they were adopting uh, Marissa several years back, the caseworkers allowed, um, allowed the siblings to go and to get the child, the adopted child, and be the ones that presented the child to the family. And so Jeremy did that. And um, Jeremy was six years old at the time. He went back to get Marissa. And Jeremy brought Marissa out, his little sister, as a proud older brother to show her to Ray and to Kay. And Kay says you have to keep this in mind. This is her words, not mine. Marissa was not a vision at this point. She was a newborn. She had nerve damage in her face from delivery. She had a saggy, droopy mouth. She had spiky black hair and one eye shown swat, slut, excuse me, shut. It was not a pretty picture. But Jeremy brings out his new sister, and he holds her tightly, and he announces to everyone, here she is. Isn't she beautiful? Doesn't she look just like me? <laughs> Sinclair Ferguson once said that when Jesus, our older brother, when Jesus comes before the throne of God to present us to the Father, when he says to the Father, here, Father, here are the ones that you have gave, given me. The Father will say to the Son in that moment, yes, I would have known him anywhere. They look just like you. See, that's the hope of James. More importantly this morning, that is the promise of God, that, that growing up for you doesn't mean self-sufficiency. It really just means growing up into your name. Little Christ, the name given to you in your baptism. It is the character of Jesus. That's what God wants for you in your life. And even now, as the first fruits, you saw that back in the passage, as the first fruits, God can say to you, even now, that you are perfectly right. That in Jesus, I have all that I want in you. You are my cherished portion. And now I want that to be true of every part of your life. Be a great listener. Listen to me. Follow me. And whatever you do, do what you hear. Become a doer. Persevere in the law of liberty. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your servant James. We thank you for his voice to us this morning. We pray very simply that you would make us good listeners and then that you would add to that doing. Um, Lord, that you would run with whatever conviction we need to feel, whatever assurance we lack, we pray that you would provide it. Your son loves us and intends to conform us to his image. Would you bless us in our doing, we pray. In Christ's name, amen.